0: Let's uh, turn in our Bibles now to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we will be looking today at verses 31 through 54. Now as you're looking for it, to uh, orient ourselves again to the gospel narrative. Uh, Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples Then John the Baptist. And so he determined to leave Judah and head to Galilee. And the route he took had him pass through Samaria on the way to Galilee. Then there in Galilee he came, uh, or rather in Samaria, he came to a town called Sychar. He met a woman there at the well that he conversed with. He offered her living water. And then demonstrated his divine knowledge by telling her about her messy past and her sinful present. And this prompts a question pertaining to worship, which then culminates in a conclusion that the Messiah who had come would sort all these questions out. And Jesus then reveals himself to her, dropping, and then dropping her water jar, leaving it there, the woman runs back to the village, and they tell, she tells the people there, come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This prompts then the townspeople to go and see who this man is that the woman is speaking of. And in the midst of all this, the disciples return. They'd been in town buying food. And John tells us they marveled as, as he was speaking to this woman. And so it is here as the woman runs back into town that we pick up in our reading again here starting in verse 31. So this is God's holy word I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I tell you to reap that for which you do not labor, others have labored. and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was a man, there was an official, whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to see him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, the servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour where, when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he, he, and he himself believed In all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did we had come from Judea to Galilee. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear Give us eyes to see. Help us to discern these spiritual truths that you have for us. We pray that you would sow deeply your word in us. And that in our hearts it would reap a great harvest. That we would bear much fruit in our lives. Bless this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, been nearly 40 years ago that there was a debate which was held at the University of California in Irvine between a Christian, uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, and an atheist, uh, Dr. Gordon Stein. Now, toward the end of that debate, uh, during the question and answer time, there's a question which was put to Dr. Stein regarding evidence which he would accept which would demonstrate to him the existence of God. Now surprisingly enough, Dr. Stein, the atheist, wanted, what he wanted to see was the miraculous. He wanted to see the podium raise suddenly in the air, five feet, and remain there, then come down. He wanted to see a miracle take place before his very eyes in order for him to believe in God a strange desire for a man who supposedly rejects the supernatural. Now the problem, which actually Dr. Bonson will point out, was that people don't believe because they see a miracle. They don't believe because a miracle has taken place before their very eyes. They believe because their heart has been transformed by the Spirit of God. Something miraculous must occur in their heart. They must be, as we have already seen in John chapter 3, they must be born from above. Every evidence which can be produced, every sign and wonder and fantastic thing, eventually has naysayers. There's always some way in which they'll explain it Away, And even Dr. Stein would try to explain away how the podium suddenly rose into the air. He would explain it away in some fashion. Case in point, Jesus literally rose from the dead. There were many eyewitnesses to this fact, and yet people are still wanting evidence and signs and wonders. Well, in our text today, we see the same sort of thing taking place. And in many respects, what we have is a contrast. First, we we see those who had heard the woman's testimony. They had heard the teachings of Jesus himself, and they believed. And then you have those who demand signs and wonders from Jesus. They wanted to see water turned into wine again. They wanted to see the extraordinary... And yet even when done, they still do not believe. And so this is the contrast in our text today. And so jumping back into the text, uh, we we see that the disciples have returned from their trip into town. They've come with food, and now they're urging Jesus to eat. Jesus, uh, perhaps still thirsty and hungry, but reflecting, too, on the conversation which he had just had with the Samaritan woman at the well... Now he's going to use this opportunity to teach his disciples a spiritual lesson. And so he says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now the disciples would look at this and say, wait, what? You have food? This comment was confusing to them. As it would be for you and I. Naturally, they're thinking in terms of literal food, but Jesus is speaking of spiritual matters. This has actually become something of a theme in John's Gospel, hasn't it? Nicodemus had thought of physical birth. The Samaritan woman thought of physical water. And now the disciples are thinking of physical food. So the disciples' uh, confusion is understandable. They had, after all, just gone into town to buy food for Jesus, their teacher. But now, uh, Jesus is saying that he has some secret stash of food. But Jesus clarifies his point. Verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That clears things up. At least some. We are not speaking here of physical food. Jesus didn't have a falafel stashed away in his cloak. No, Jesus' mission is his nourishment. His food is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. Jesus is here echoing the idea found in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which we read in our Old Testament reading. Man does not live by bread alone. A man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quotes this directly in Luke chapter 4, and he he will allude again to this in in John chapter 6. And so in seeking the law, such as the Samaritan woman that he had conversed with, there is more life-giving sustenance and satisfaction than any food that could be offered. Not because physical food is unimportant, but because the Word of God and the work of God is that much more important. Listen, Jesus had given life. He had given eternal life to this woman, to this dear soul, this this dear soul who had come to the well, This, this wretched sinner. But there are others too in need of this. There are others who are sinners. Maybe not as outwardly sinful or seemingly sinful as the woman was. I mean, she was obviously a wretched sinner, but the others in town were too. They too needed the living water which Jesus was offering. And even now, at that very moment, there were some who were coming out of the village. They were streaming to Jesus to hear the good news because of the testimony of the woman. They too needed that life-changing word as much as she did. So even now, the townspeople were coming needing that life, that living water, that life-transforming and nourishing word of God. And so notice that Jesus directs the gaze of his disciples toward that. He, he wants them to look beyond themselves. He wants them to look beyond the, the food which they had in their hands to bring to Jesus. They wanted, he wanted them to look up. Look outward. And he uses the illustration of growing crops. In four months time, the harvest would be coming in. It would be ready to be brought in. And when it comes to growing things, waiting is the game, isn't it? You plant, and then you wait. You plant your seed, and you wait for the growth to come. Verse 35, he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See, see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, someone else has already planted the seed and the germination has occurred and growth has taken place. Look beyond yourselves. See that the harvest of souls is now. As the people of the village are coming out to to, to see Jesus for themselves. And so Jesus is pointing them to the people who are coming out. It may be four more months until the wheat is ready to be brought in, but in the history of redemption, the harvest of men's souls had already begun. This, the salvation of people, is the work that the Father had given to the Son, Jesus Christ, to do. Jesus had come to save sinners. Mankind had fallen into sin by the... Uh, by, by our, because of the sin of our first father, Adam, as he ate of the forbidden fruit. The result of this has been open rebellion, a total loss of communion with God, coming under his wrath and curse, and the, the miseries of this life, death itself and the pains of hell forever. And Jesus came to rescue his people from all of that. He had come with the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom, Luke 4, 43. And so the disciples who, were, who had been preoccupied with earthly things, again, this has been something of a the theme, you know, Nicodemus had been preoccupied with earthly things, the Samaritan woman had been preoccupied with uh, earthly things, even his own disciples had been preoccupied with earthly things. Of course, if we are honest, so are we. Jesus is reminding us of our preoccupations with earthly things. But he's inviting his disciples to look up. Look up, see. Look look who's coming. The harvest is here. Look at this mass of humanity which was coming even now. These, These crops which are ready to be harvested as it were. Even now, Jesus said, the one who reaps is receiving his wages. The reaper, who ordinarily must wait for the crop to be ready, was already being employed. He was already gathering fruit for eternal life. And Jesus said in verse 36, in this way, that the sower and the reaper are enabled to rejoice together. The sower labors, anticipating what is to come. The reaper must remember that the fruit he enjoys is the labor of another. As the proverbial saying goes, quoted in uh, verse 17, one sows, another reaps. Jesus is here showing that there is a division of labor. The disciples will be sent out to reap that which they did not labor for. Verse 38. It is the Lord who is sowing the seeds of faith, and His disciples will reap the fruit of His labor. While He is still present with them, They can rejoice together. The disciples as reapers will be able to celebrate a spiritual crop that they did not themselves plant. In farm life, often the sower is also the reaper, though there may be times when the labor is divided. But as we consider the spiritual realm, often the sower and the reaper are different people. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There are some who plant, others who water, but it is God who gives the growth. Ultimately, this is God's work. It is God who is doing this work. And you and I have the privilege of participating in it. We're invited to participate in this work of God. Some might sow the seed of the word through the preaching of the word. Others may water through careful discipleship and encouragement. And some have the opportunity to reap the harvest as sinners respond to the call of the gospel. But as we understand from the parable of the soils, it is God. It is His Spirit who prepares the soil of the heart. In order for the harvest to come in, the person must be born again, must be born from above. It is God who causes the growth. And so here we see Jesus has sown the seeds of the word and the disciples have the opportunity to reap the spiritual harvest for which they themselves did not plant. They didn't labor for this. They get to enjoy the fruit of it. Others have labored, Jesus said, and you have entered into their labor. And so this is what has happened. Many of the people of the town had come. They they came to hear the teaching of Jesus for themselves. They had come originally because of the testimony of the woman. But now they heard the word for themselves. And many, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus. They believed, John explains, first because of the woman's testimony... Jesus had sown the seed of faith and now the woman had gone to the town and she was reaping fruit among the people there. Her testimony was simply this in verse 39. He told me all that I I ever did. He told me all that I ever did. Beloved congregation, personal testimonies of our faith in Christ are critical parts of our walk with Christ. It's good, it's right to share how Christ has worked in you. In fact, this is, this is one of the great joys of the elders as we, as we meet with people who want to become members of this church, as we, we get to hear their testimony of faith. We, we had the opportunity uh, just yesterday to meet with the Villalobos family and to hear their testimony, to see how Christ has worked in them. What a great joy that is. We love to hear how God has called you to be His Notice, though, too, that the woman's testimony ultimately is of Christ. Ultimately, it's of Christ. Our our personal testimonies are not about what we did to be saved. It's what Christ has done in us and for us. We, too, must ultimately point to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we see the testimony of Jesus himself is far greater than our own testimony. That Jesus was able to reveal this woman's past was enough to convince many. And so because of this, the Samaritans asked him to stay. Now, understand how radical this is. That the the Samaritans should ask a Jewish rabbi to stay and to teach them. This speaks to the trust that he had already earned among them. They already believed that he was the promised Messiah. And so Jesus spent two days in the village teaching. This is also, by the way, unique because later Jesus will instruct his disciples that, that when they're sent out to evangelize, that they're not to go to the Samaritans, they're not to go to these Samaritan towns, but they were only to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Here, though, Jesus does a mighty work among a particular town in Samaria. And many, many believed. And so as Jesus taught, and many came to believe because of His Word, which again shows the power of Jesus' Word, uh, the, the people of Sychar said to the woman, verse 43, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know That this is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, Jesus came to the Samaritans and they believed. And not because of the woman's testimony. They believed because of Christ's own testimony of himself. They believed indeed that he was the Messiah. And that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, there is a bit of irony here, actually. Which should not be lost on us. In the prologue, in John chapter 1, verse 11, you, we might, you might remember reading this, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. He came to His own people. He came among the Jews. They didn't receive Him. He goes to Samaritans. They receive Him. They believe that he is the Messiah, the Savior. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that wonderful, though? Even among the Samaritan people, they believed and became children of God. Now, as I mentioned already, Jesus spent two days with the Samaritans before he departed for Galilee. Now we read that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And yet, John here reports that the Galileans welcomed him with open arms. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now, the problem is, is that this appears to be, perhaps, a contradiction, doesn't it? Galilee was Jesus' home, homeland, and yet they seem to welcome him, despite the proverbial statement that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So you might ask, well, what's going on here? This is his hometown, and yet it says he has no honor in his hometown. How, do, how is this all working out? Well, for one thing, with the written word, we aren't always able to catch the tone, the tone with which it's written. Here, though, John may be writing with some amount of sarcasm. You see, it is the case that the Galileans did welcome Jesus, but they did not give him the proper honor because their welcome was superficial. Notice that John points out that they had seen what Jesus had done at the feast in Jerusalem. They saw the signs and wonders which had been done there. And no doubt the stories were already circulating about what had happened at the wedding feast in Cana. And so what they wanted was signs and wonders. In other words, the Galileans... We welcome him because what they really want is for Jesus to perform for them. They really weren't interested in his message of the kingdom of God. They weren't interested in him being the Messiah and the Savior of the world. What they wanted were temporal delights. They wanted spiritual expressions which they could see and touch. You see now the contrast with the Samaritans. Notice that the Samaritans in that particular town had embraced Jesus as the Savior of the world. They had heard the testimony of the woman. They had heard the testimony of Jesus himself, and they believed. The Galileans here, on on the other hand, what they wanted were parlor tricks. And so here is... There, there is no contradiction here. What we have here is actually irony. And maybe some sarcasm. The people who, were worship, who had been worshipping on the wrong mountain, who didn't have the fullness of God's testimony of himself, that is the Samaritans, they believed. In fact, the first one among them to believe was a five-time married adulteress. But the people who were members of the covenant people, who had the fullness of God's revelation, who worshipped properly in Jerusalem, had missed it. They wanted evidence without substance. This will become more clear by what comes next. Suffice to say that the welcome of the Galileans was hollow. And so we see that Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee. This is the same village in which he had turned the water into wine. And it's here that he meets an official who had come up from Capernaum, which is near the Sea of Galilee. And his son was gravely ill. And when he heard that Jesus had come, he went and asked him to come and heal his son, for the boy was at the point of death. Note the official who came to Jesus came begging him. He was begging him to come heal his son. It's like this. If you don't come, my son will die. You must come. What we're, what's being expressed here is the, a hopeless father coming to Jesus out of desperation. Surely this man had tried every medical treatment available at the time. He is an official, a man of some means. This official didn't come to the Lord with much thought about who Jesus was. In some sense, he didn't really care who Jesus was. He only knew that this man could work miracles. This was a last-ditch effort, for he thought that perhaps here's one who held the power to heal my son. And really, that's all he wanted. There are many in our own day who approach the Lord in a similar manner. They're not interested in who Jesus is. They only want what Jesus may offer. They want miracles. They demand for signs and wonders. They desire healings and prosperity. They want the avoidance of pain and suffering. In fact, this is the reason that many are angry with God. They're angry because God didn't give them what they wanted. What they want is a God who's like a genie in a bottle, who answers their every whim. They believe that God owes them something somehow. God owes them the avoidance of pain. God owes them the avoidance of misery in this life. They want what Christ. They want Christ for what they think He might offer them: health, wealth a good life, but they don't want Christ the Savior and God. This is, by the way, the problem with the heretical so-called prosperity gospel. It leaves many people bitter and worse off than they were before when God doesn't seem to come through for them. The kind of teaching and thinking which demands signs and wonders and proofs and parlor tricks. Jesus is rightly critical. Look what he says in verse 48. So Jesus said to them, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now these words were not directed only at the official. You know, the one whose son he wants healed. It's it's, it's directed at the Galileans in general. They had welcomed Jesus, not because he was the Messiah and the Redeemer, but because they thought they could get something out of him. Which is to say that their faith in him was fundamentally flawed. Their focus was on signs and wonders, the working of miracles, and not on the transformation of the heart and of salvation. One of the messages which is implicit in John's Gospel is that too much interest in the signs and wonders themselves can be spiritually dangerous. True faith does not become come because miracles are performed. True faith also does not come because we pile up the evidence. There is a there's an apologetic uh, val- value to miracles just as there's an apologetic uh, value to evidences but their value is often exaggerated faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ Romans ten, seventeen. And this is instructive for us As we make disciples of the nations and are always ready to make a defense for the faith within us. The miracles of Jesus point to the reality of who he is and of his teaching. That was the purpose of his signs. The signs themselves are not the main point. The Galileans were too preoccupied with seeing the signs and wonders performed even as they were disinterested in the spiritual realities which those signs pointed to. You see the spiritual danger here, the spiritual apathy which runs rapid even today. The same sort of thing. People are still doing this sort of thing, right? They they want to see the fantastic, and yet they're otherwise spiritually apathetic. The official was not interested in Christology or the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He wasn't even interested in the signs and wonders themselves. No, this official was interested in seeing his dying son made well again. That's all he's really interested in. Messianic expectations and faith were of little concern to him at that moment. Nevertheless, isn't God so gracious? Our Lord is so gracious. Notice how gracious the Lord is as he, he answers the urgent plea of this desperate father. Verse 50 Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Isn't the Lord so good? And we read then further the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus spoke a word, and the man's son is healed. Now notice that the man did not see the healing, and yet he believes. He believes the word which Jesus spoke, and he departed not having seen, but believing. This is quite unlike his fellow Galileans, who were preoccupied with seeing first, before they would believe. And that even when they saw, they still didn't believe. And so while he's still on his way home, one of the official servants comes and tells him that his son is recovered. And since the boy was getting better, one of the servants who had been sent, he brings this good news, and the man asks about, well, when did this happen? What's the timing of this? Evidently, the man had spent the night. Uh, He was returning the next day because it it says that it occurred at the seventh hour of the day before. John points out that the father knew that this was the hour that Jesus had spoken, your son will live. All he had wanted, all he had wanted was for his son to live, but the Lord graciously gave him so much more. He and his whole household then believed. This, John says in verse 54, was the second sign which Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now this is not, when he says the second sign, which Jesus did, this is the second sign that he had done in, in Galilee. John's not counting anything he had done in Judea. He's only counting those things done in Galilee. And this will, by the way, be the last time which signs are enumerated in the Gospel. There's only this two times that they're enumerated. And the counting of signs done in Galilee was because the Galileans were so preoccupied with them. And so there Jesus had done two acts of mercy from which few, though there were some, but few had seemed to respond. Again, contrast this with that Samaritan village. The miraculous event, which was most amazing, was not the turning of water into wine. It wasn't in the healing of this man's son. It was a transforming of souls, of hearts to Christ. That was the most amazing thing that occurred. And what we have here in John's Gospel is a contrast between two kinds of faith. If I could put it that way. One is a faith which comes about by Grace and is formed in the heart by the Spirit of God, where people see their own wickedness, they see their own sin, they they see the lostness of their condition, and they turn to Christ. They receive and rest on Him alone. This is what we might call a justifying faith. On the other hand, we see those who are preoccupied with the outward. They desire signs and wonders and fantastic works. It is a faith which is merely outward. It's not receiving Christ for who He is. These are people who desire what God may give them. Beloved, this is not a saving faith. It is really no faith at all. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that the preoccupation with spiritual experiences, the seeking of the fantastic, the extraordinary, can be, and often is, dangerous for your soul. In our own day, there are many who are chasing after certain experiences. For them, truth is not what Jesus said, but what they experience, what they feel for themselves. This, by the way, does fall into the postmodern trap of individuals making their own truth. That's not to say that there is no experience, but our faith is not rooted in seeing signs and wonders. It is, like Abraham, believing God, which is then counted to us as righteousness. The difference between the official of the dying son, the Samaritans on the one hand, and the Galileans in general on the other, is that those who have true faith believed Jesus' words. The others did not. They wanted signs. It wasn't something tangible. Too many want what Jesus might give them and not Jesus himself. And if we're honest, sometimes we're guilty of this too, aren't we? Sometimes we want Jesus for what he might give to us. And not because we're in Him. Do you want Jesus for who He is? Or do you want what He might give to you? Dear Christian, don't chase after mere temporal experiences. Don't chase after the extraordinary what the ordinary will do. For the ordinary means of grace is what the Lord has given to us. Isn't it? You see, the Lord has condescended Himself. He has given to us some experience, hasn't He? The Lord has given to us His Word. The Lord has given to us the sacraments of baptism and the supper. The Lord has given to us prayer. These are the ordinary means of grace. Don't chase after the extraordinary when the ordinary will do. These are the channels by which God has determined to speak to us, to interact with us as his people. It is here that the Lord communicates to us his grace. Find your refreshment, beloved congregation in your Savior and your God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Help us, O God, to believe your word. Help us to not to, to seek to, to find experiences, but to just rest in, your, in, in Christ and to um, enjoy the ordinary means of grace. Help us to be a people who are in your word. Help us to be a people who take uh, great joy and spiritual nourishment in your sacraments. and Help us to be a people who pray who are on our knees crying out to You, people who who are grateful to You for what You've done, and that we are in Christ as Your people. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.